Good morning. It's a joy to be with you. Let me invite you to open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, where you're going to find your place in verse 37. And I will read Luke 6, 37 through 49. Luke 6, 37 through 49. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, Then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. and The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Father in heaven, as we've heard your word read once more this morning, we pray, O Lord, that you would open our eyes, you would soften our hearts, that you would make us, O Lord, to be people who do not merely hear your words, but people who hear your words spoken through your Son and do them. We know that this requires that inner transformation that we cannot produce of our own accord, but that transformation of the heart only you can produce. So we pray, O Lord, that you would soften our hearts to receive your word. For any who are here, if any are here, who have not yet received your word in faith, We pray that you would soften their hearts unto this as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before our Lord ascended to heaven, he commissioned his disciples to be those who make disciples. He told them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he assured them, saying, And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus called disciples to himself, and then sent them out to be those who make disciples. 
not to make disciples of their own, but to make disciples like them, who are disciples of Christ as well. And so this task falls to every one of us who is a disciple of Christ. We are commissioned by our Lord to go into the world and to make disciples of Christ. But if we're to do that well, we need to do it in a way that is consistent with the way in which Christ made disciples. To put it rather simply, Jesus taught His disciples that their life in Him, their life as disciples, rested upon a fourfold foundation that we are going to see in the text before us this morning. It rests on a fourfold foundation or four pillars which we can describe in a positive and a negative way. The first pillar is grace, not judgmentalism. The second pillar is humility, humble sincerity, not hypocrisy. The third pillar is a transformed heart, not mere outward religion. And the fourth pillar, the cornerstone, is recognition of the lordship of Jesus Christ, not the lordship of self, not individual rule. Our life following Christ rests upon these four pillars, and that is what we are going to see this morning in the text that is before us. We see this first pillar of grace, not judgmentalism, in what Jesus taught his disciples when he said, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Now these first words, judge not, and you will not be judged, one scholar has observed, may have displaced in our culture John 3.16 as the most well-known words in all of the Bible. You hear them often enough, if you ever have a conversation with somebody, judge not and you will not be judged. But we very often misunderstand them. If they're the most often quoted words, they may also be the most often misunderstood words of Jesus. For here, he does not say, do not correct, and he does not say, do not make evaluations about what is right and what is wrong. He says, do not judge and do not condemn. But to understand what he is saying, we must understand what it is to judge, what it is to condemn. And for this, I'd ask you to turn over a few pages in Luke to Luke chapter 12, where I will show you a picture of what it means to be a judge, what it means to stand in judgment. In Luke 12, verse 57, Jesus will later give these instructions to his disciples, and he will say, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. In that context, Jesus is speaking about judgment and condemnation. And what we see is that judgment and condemnation It refers to what we might call sentencing and verdict, or verdict and sentencing. If you go before a human judge, and you are accused of some crime, and you are found guilty before that judge, that declaration of guilt, that you are guilty, is the judgment. Or if you are acquitted and you are found not guilty, not proven guilty, then you are acquitted. And in in this acquittal, 
that verdict is again rendered. A judgment is rendered. Guilty or not guilty. And if you are found guilty, then a sentencing will follow whereby the judge will issue his condemnation. That is, he will sentence you or deliver to you the consequences of what you did. That is what it means to judge. And that is what it means to condemn. And here, as Jesus speaks of judgment and condemnation and tells his disciples not to judge, lest they be judged, and not to condemn, lest they be condemned, he is not saying, don't judge because there is no judgment. He's not saying, don't judge because there is no judge. There is a judge. He's speaking to us in these words. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a day coming when we, He will come and judge the living and the dead. But He tells His disciples now that that time for judgment is not yet. And we are not to take to ourselves the task that is appointed to Him. We are not to stand over people with judgment and condemnation. But rather, we are to treat others with grace and love, even as we have received grace from our Lord Jesus Christ, even as He has extended His mercy to us, so too ought our character to be toward those whom we encounter in the church and outside of the church. Our character should be one of grace, not judgmentalism. Now, as I alluded and I mentioned, there is a common misinterpretation, and I want to develop this idea a little bit more, this common misinterpretation about what it means to judge or not to judge. Because so often, when people hear Christians making evaluations about what is right and what is wrong, they think, well, you're just being judgmental. As if judgment here refers to making any, uh, any judgment whatsoever about what is right or wrong. And then they'll marshal this text, judge not lest you be judged. Is it to say, some Christian you are, didn't Jesus tell you not to judge? Well, we've seen that that's not precisely what he's talking about. But also, we need to recognize that when we come to texts like this, we need to reject what I call a wedge interpretation. What is a wedge interpretation? A wedge interpretation is that which divides one thing that Christ has spoken and separates it from another thing that Christ has spoken, as if the two cannot mutually exist, as if the two exclude one another. That's not the way to approach his words. That's what he teaches us at the very end of this passage. The one who hears some of his words and builds his life on just some of Jesus' words has built his life on a good foundation. No. All of Christ's words are his words. And it's not just those things which some translations put in red. As some Christians go about calling themselves red-letter Christians, saying, well, I just look to the words of Jesus. Everything that you find in Holy Scripture is the Word of Christ. Everything in Scripture is spoken to us, given to us by the triune God. And if it is the Father's words, it is the Son's words. If it is the Spirit's words, it is the Son's words. All that we find in Holy Scripture is the Word of Christ. We cannot drive a wedge between what He has spoken in one place and what He has spoken in another. For instance, in Matthew 18, He taught His disciples that there was a context whereby there would be a judgment rendered within the church. He says this in Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And in that text in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus laid out a process for rendering a kind of judgment in the church. But notice the grace that infuses that process. You don't render a judgment against a person because he sins. You go to them and seek to be reconciled to that person. You extend grace to that person if he's sinned against you. And later in that same passage, when Peter asks, well, how often must I go through this process? How often must I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven? Is that enough? And Jesus says 70 times seven. In other words, a Hebrew idiom for there's not a limit, Peter. You must always forgive him. And so you see the application of what Jesus is saying here in Luke. Forgive and you will be forgiven. This process does not begin with judgment. It begins with grace. And even when that person resists, it continues with grace. The charge must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It cannot even progress to the point of judgment on one person's accusation alone. Two or three independent witnesses must substantiate the charge. And here, too, what we see then is an extension of grace because what's the aim? The restoration of the brother. The restoration of the one who is living in a way that's contrary to the word of Christ. A call to repentance. A call to fellowship. That's grace. That's not judgment. The judgment only comes when that person has repeatedly and persistently rejected those offers of grace. And note here This is the only context in which such judgments are rendered here and now. It is not rendered by one person. Your pastor cannot render this judgment. No elder can render this judgment. It is rendered in the gathered congregation. The charge is brought before the church. And it is ultimately sanctioned by the Lord Jesus himself, the one who is the judge. And even there, that judgment is gracious. Because even there, there's the hope of repentance. That person is not cast off forever. The person is simply regarded as an unbeliever. In the eyes of the world, that person has suffered nothing. He has had his name removed from a list in a modern way of speaking. But Jesus assures his followers in heaven, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of Christ, that action has merit. There is a judgment that is rendered in that passage, in that picture. But it's only after a prolonged process of extending grace to the person. And what we see then here in in Matthew 18 is something that is to be understood as consistent with what Jesus teaches us as his disciples. That we are not to rush to judgments. That we are not to rush to exclude people. That as we see people struggling in the Christian life, struggling with sin. We're not to simply push them aside and say, well, that's a no good person. No, we're to extend grace to that person. We're to, if they've wronged us, forgive them. 
Stand ready always to be reconciled to them. We're to give that to them. That is to help them. Always extending grace with patience and love to others. That must be the character of Christ's disciples. And why must it be the character of our life together? Because we are those who have received grace from our Lord and day by day continue to receive that which we do not deserve from Him. If we have been so treated by the judge of all the earth, then we ought also to treat one another. For as I said earlier, judge not does not mean there's no judgment. You can see that right here in the text. Judge not and you will not be judged implies that there will be a judgment. Condemn not and you will not be condemned implies that there will be a condemnation. Forgive and you will be forgiven implies that forgiveness will be granted. Give and it will be given to you and so that we understand that we're not earning this forgiveness and that we're not being Uh, given it because we're so good and so righteous and just so forgiving. This next picture that Jesus gives shows us that this too is grace, a free gift. Think about this picture with me. Jesus loved pictures. Good measure is what will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This week my wife made bread. She makes wonderful sourdough bread, and some of you have enjoyed it. But she tried to make a loaf earlier, and she had bad measure. And I saw her on the countertop pulling it like that old gack that I used to play with as a boy. Really loose and fun to play with, but didn't make good bread. It was bad measure. She tried again with good measure and made a beautiful sourdough loaf. We'll enjoy that after dinner today. Here, This is the picture that Jesus is talking about. A measure of dough, and not just any measure, not that stringy, liquidy measure that we saw earlier in the week, but good measure that is pressed down and shaken together, and it's so good that it's it's, it's abundant, it's running over, it's overflowing, and you can imagine a picture of an ancient woman back then with her her apron pulled up and dough flowed into, into her lap, and it's overflowing. There's so much of it. That's what the grace of God will look like and does look like to us. He doesn't just give us a little bit of grace. His grace overflows to us. It's amazing grace, as we sang. And so we ought also to be gracious to others. We ought to extend that kind of measure that we've received from our Lord to those with whom we live together as Christ's disciples and those who come into our midst as Christ's disciples. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have prayed as a church, and we will continue to pray that God would use us in our community, among our neighbors, to reach others for the gospel. And if God grants that prayer, people will come through those doors who don't look like us, who don't dress like us. And the challenge that we're going to be faced with is there'll be something nagging in us to say, Mm, look at that person with a raised eyebrow. Who's that coming through that door? To judge that person in our heart. We must not do that. If God graciously answers our prayer to add to our, our number by bringing people to faith in Christ, and He is gracious to use us to fulfill 
His great commission to fulfill His word and His will that the gospel should go forth to the ends of the earth. We will see people who come through those doors who our first inclination will be to reject. We must not do that. We must show them grace. But it doesn't mean that we ignore the struggles and trials of life. We make disciples. We patiently and graciously teach them what Christ has taught us. Teach them about the grace of Christ to us and the grace that He offers to them. And teach them about the life that He would have them live, even as we are learning to live that life with all patience and all kindness. That's the kind of character that we need to extend to them. It's not just about sharing the gospel and moving on and hoping they move on with their life. It's about making followers. And that takes more than a minute presentation of the good news. It takes a lifetime of sharing life together, centered and founded upon God's Word and directed at His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what I pray will be the character, our character together. Grace, not judgmentalism. When one sins, we always aim for restoration. When we see others struggling, we encourage them with the gospel of grace and call them to repent and believe in that gospel. Pillar two. Pillar two is about humble sincerity. Humble sincerity, not hypocrisy. And you see this here in verse 39 and following with the parable that Jesus tells and then the, uh, the words that he speaks afterward. The parable is simple. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? It's a funny picture. You see a man who's blind taking another blind man by the hand and walking down the the road. And what do they do? They end up in a ditch. Blind men don't lead blind men. Blind teachers should not be leading blind teachers. Now, Jesus and Matthew will speak of the Pharisees as blind guides of the blind. And he tells his disciples, leave them alone. The thing is, in that picture that Jesus paints of a blind man leading a blind man, It's obvious to everyone that those two guys are blind. But what's also clear is they don't realize their blindness. And that's what the Pharisees were like. They taught a judgmental, self-righteous religion that had no grace extended to others in it. That was their faith, and it was blindness because they were blind to their own sin. They were blind guides leading blind men, and that doesn't work. So Jesus says, a disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Okay? If you're a blind teacher, what kind of disciple do you make? You make blind disciples. Disciples end up like their teachers. If you're a self-righteous teacher, what kind of disciple do you make? Self-righteous disciples. But what kind of teacher is Christ? He is one who is is in fact rightly described as righteous in himself, perfect in every way. And yet he is gracious and loving. This is the kind of disciple he would make. We will never be above him. But if we learn to follow him and follow him well, when we are fully trained, we will be like him. We will be like him as we grow in holiness, but we will also be like him as we grow in grace toward others as we show love toward others. He is not a blind guide. He is a guide that sees and knows all things, and He leads us well and leads us rightly. And if we're to lead others to follow Him, we must learn to follow Him as well. 
So he gives us another picture. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, he said, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? And here's another funny picture. Our Lord had a sense of humor. Let me paint that picture for you so you can really see it. A man's walking around, and he has a two-by-four sticking out of his head. A two-by-four sticking out of his eye. And you walk up to him and you say, Oh, sir, you look like you need help. Can I, can I help you? He says, Well, I'm trying to find my, my place of work. Well, what do you do? Where do you work? Well, I'm an ophthalmologist. I'm a doctor who works on eyes. You say, Oh, boy. Let me know where you work so I know not to go there. It's a funny picture. There's a man with a log in his eyes, and he wants to go around correcting everyone else's vision, removing the specks that they have in their eyes. But that's what judgmental religion looks like. We always see the faults in others as minor, as little as they may be. And yet we see no faults in ourselves. That's what the Pharisees were like. It'd be like someone walking through those doors, not wearing a coat and tie, and me walking up to that man and say, well, you know, we're, we're glad for you to worship here, but we really require people to wear ties, which of course isn't true. No judgment against those of you who don't. That would be such a minute thing, a little thing, not even a real speck. And yet it's what I'm looking at and saying, ah, oh, That person can't be a real Christian. He doesn't wear a tie on Sunday. How absurd. How ridiculous. And yet, all the while, I'm not seeing the log in my own eye, the self-righteous condition that thinks that somehow, somehow, I make myself worthy before the God of all the universe because I have such a nice tie. Utterly ridiculous. That's what judgmental, self-righteous religion looks like always hunting for specks in other people's eyes. What does Jesus call it? He calls it what it is. It is hypocrisy. It's not humility. It's not sincerity. It's hypocrisy. And his disciples should know nothing of it. But rather they must begin first in every act of discipleship. Begin first with self-examination. Begin by looking inward and evaluating oneself and seeing where we ourselves, where I myself need to grow and need to be changed and need to be conformed to Christ's word and to Christ's person through the gracious work of God in my life. And only then, when I have done that, will I be able, as Jesus teaches, to help others to remove those specks from their eyes. It's a condition for me to be able to do that, that I've learned to do it myself. This is why in the New Testament and 1 Timothy, for instance, or in Titus, we see that there are standards placed upon pastors and deacons, or there are standards for elders and deacons. Not anyone can simply assume the office because he wants it. He must reach certain character qualifications. And I dare say, every single person, myself included, who is a pastor now, who is really truly qualified for that, can look back and say, there are many times in my life where I truly was not qualified. We are not born qualified for the ministry, but God graciously works in us to bring us to that point of being qualified for the ministry. And so 
too, it is with every disciple. He graciously works in us. And it's that process, understanding His grace in our sanctification, that enables us to then disciple others. As we have learned how it is that one removes logs and specks from eyes. That is, how it is that the Lord makes disciples like their teacher. That should be the character of our life together. Just as we are to be characterized by grace, we must be characterized by humility. And one way we do that is by beginning with self-examination. Now, pillar three then supports this idea. Pillar three of this foundation is the transformed heart. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Some of you have apple orchards. Some of you have bushes in your gardens that are growing fruit. Some of you grow other kinds of things in your gardens. You don't go to the apple tree and find carrots growing there. You don't go to the fig tree and find thistles and thorns. You find figs. That's what a fig tree produces. That's what an apple tree produces. What does that have to do with a transformed heart? Exactly what Jesus says in verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Pillar three is transformed heart, not outward religion. So often as we seek to make disciples, we focus on what we see outside. And we think if we just change the way the person looks and the way the person dresses and the way the person acts in his life through a habit of self-discipline and through a hard, heavy hand applied to that person, then that person will become like us. That's not the transformation that Christ works in His disciples. The transformation that Christ works is a transformation of the heart. It's a transformation that changes a person from the inside out. And that's where the good fruit comes from. It doesn't come from the exterior. It comes from the inside. You can see this, for instance, in John 3. There... Jesus sat with Nicodemus. And as he sat with Nicodemus, he told Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus taught Nicodemus that if he was to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God, he had to experience something called the new birth. Nicodemus didn't know what he was talking about, which surprised Jesus. He said, aren't you the teacher of Israel and you don't know what I'm talking about? How can you not understand these things? Nicodemus thought he was talking about climbing into his mother's womb and being born again in that sense. How can that be possible? So Jesus explained, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. In other words, you need the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need the Holy Spirit to give you new life through His gracious work, whereby you are able to receive the gospel by faith. You're like a blind man whose eyes are opened. You didn't open your own eyes. But once they were opened, you saw. And you didn't say, well, let me see if I'll decide to see. 
Your eyes were open and you saw. And your hearts changed, you believe, and you begin to grow. And that heart transformation is what leads to the fruit of the Spirit as the Spirit continues to work in our lives to press out the old and to produce in us the new. That's what we need in our lives. We need that kind of transformation. Otherwise, we'll be like the evil person who has an evil heart with evil treasure and produces evil that comes from our mouth and comes out of us. Even the evil of self-righteousness like the Pharisees. We need that transformed heart. And so as we become disciples and we make disciples, we ought to make it our goal to aim for transformed hearts. But you say... You just said that I can't transform a heart. Only God can do that. That's right. Only God can do that work. Yet He has also told us the means by which He performs that work. Of course, if it's God's work, it begins with prayer. We pray for ourselves and we pray for others. This is why so often before and after we read God's Word, I pray that God would soften our hearts to receive His Word. Because we need God to do that transforming work and to continue that work in us so that we will receive His Word and become doers of His Word. But God has also shown us what are the means that He has given us by which He graciously does this transforming work in our hearts. We see these means of grace, for instance, in Psalm 1. The first one is God's Word. In Psalm 1, we read, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This is the picture of the good life. This is a man who has made God's word his constant meditation. And what does David go on to say in Psalm 1? He is like a tree planted by streams of living water. And in this picture, God's Word is the stream of living water, and He is the tree. The blessed man is the tree, planted by that stream, by meditating on it, and devoting his time and his mental energy to God's Word. And what does it do? It produces life in him. It produces fruit. He bears his fruit in his season. That's what it's like to plant yourself by the Word of God and make it your constant meditation. It is a source of life. It will work, that God will work through His Word to transform your heart, that you will produce the fruit that He seeks. There are other means that God has appointed whereby He does this work. You are a means that God has appointed whereby He does this work. And I want to show you this from one of the last letters Paul wrote at least last in terms of order in Scripture, to a man named Philemon. In Philemon 7, Paul tells this man, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And in verse 20, he's going to call upon Philemon to refresh my heart in Christ as he challenges him to treat a man who was his servant, his slave, now as a brother in Christ. He's saying, refresh my heart in Christ. And in this way, Philemon has an an opportunity to do what he's already been doing, that is, being a means by which God refreshes the hearts of the saints. 
by which God does a transforming work in the hearts of His people. We are in a means through the fellowship around the Word, through the encouragement we give to others, through the work of discipleship that Christ has given to us, whereby God works His transforming work in our lives. And of course, Jesus Christ is the one from whom all of these blessings flow in our lives. He is the one who nourishes us. He is the one who enables us to produce these fruits. As we read in Philippians chapter 1, Philippians 1, Paul prays to this effect in verse 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So as we fix our eyes on Christ, as we rest upon His work, and as we trust in His words and teach others to do likewise, through Him, God will do a work in us through Christ, through His word, and through one another to produce the fruit that He desires in our lives. It doesn't come through your own self-discipline alone, through your own strength. And so we must not make others think that that's the way it will come for them. It comes through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, mediated to us through the means that He has appointed, through God's Word, through fellowship, through prayer, and through Jesus Christ. And then this leads us finally back to the fourth pillar. Must be the foundation of our life together, the cornerstone of this foundation, namely Jesus Christ and His Lordship in our lives. Here we look to Christ as our Lord, not to ourselves anymore. That is the result of what Adam and Eve did. They sought to be lords of their own lives, they threw off the Lordship of God in their act of rebellion, and so too, all who come from Adam and Eve us included, have this natural disposition. We want to take control of our life. We want to seize the day before us. We want to take charge of the things in our lives. And Christ calls us and says, no, you must recognize that I am Lord. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you give lip service to my Lordship? And do not do what I tell you. A Lord is a master. A Lord is a ruler. A Lord is one whom we obey. He calls us to obey Him. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, He says, I will show you what He is like. He's like a wise man. He is a man building a house. He dug deep. He laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Jesus calls us to build our lives on His words. He's saying, this is a foundation that will steady you in the storm of life, in every difficulty that you face. You can trust that there is a solid foundation, and if you stand on that foundation, you will not be shaken. And ultimately, flood is a sign of judgment. A flood is a picture of judgment. There is a judgment coming, as I've said again and again, and everyone will go either through that judgment or be brought down in that judgment. And the only people that will stand in that judgment, that will go through that judgment, are those who are standing upon Christ 
in Christ alone, He is the only foundation that can hold you up in that storm. And here He calls us to rest upon His words, and not only His words, but through His words, He spoke of His work, of what He would do, that He would go to a cross, that He would die for our sins on that cross, that He would rise again, in order to satisfy our deepest need before a holy God, so that when we come to that judgment, we can stand on that day, not on ourselves as our own foundation, but on Jesus Christ and Christ alone, who is the only one who can steady us on that day, the only one who can make us to stand. This is the life that we're called to. One that acknowledges the lordship of Christ. If we reject his lordship, if we reject his word, we are like foolish men building a beach house with no foundation. We think it's going to be wonderful. Right there on the sand, looking over the water. But that flood is going to come and that house is going to come crashing down and we are going to come crashing down with it. That's what it looks like to build our lives on ourselves. Now, we're told that Satan often snatches away God's word when we hear it. When some people hear it, Satan comes and snatches it away. And one way I suggest to you by which, that he snatches it away is by twisting the words of Christ. Jesus here has told us to do his words, to be hearers of his word and obedient to his words. And we hear these words, hear and do. And on the one hand, we think we fall so short which is not altogether wrong. On the other hand, we may look to others and say they fall so short, which is not altogether wrong. And yet, we're twisting that word by ignoring all of his word. You see what I mean here? Let me put it in the context of our modern culture. I mentioned how judge not is commonly misinterpreted. It becomes a license for many people to individual lordship, For them, those words, judge not, means there's no right or wrong. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? I'll live my life whatever way I please. And if we say that you must repent and believe the gospel and come to Jesus Christ and trust on Him and Him alone, I say that's just judgment. That's just wrong. Who are you to say that? But we're not the ones who say that. Our Lord is the one who has said that. And we bear that message that He has spoken. We misuse his word so often as a license to be Lord of our own life. So too we do it when we become like Pharisees, when we make it a license to be lords over others. When grace is replaced with Pharisaic rules and we use those rules then to heap judgment and condemnation upon others in order to control them, rather than inviting them to embrace the freedom that comes with a life of following Christ. We do it like the Pharisees who heap rule upon rule, and create what I like to call checklist Christianity. If you only follow all of these points, then you'll be a good Christian. In order to exercise a lordship over them, that is not our lordship. No, we must hear all that Christ has said. When he says, hear my words and do my words, we must hear what he has just said about grace and about forgiveness and about transformation. And we must be doers 
in accordance with these principles, these foundational pillars that He has given us, whereby we show grace to others as we invite them to receive the grace that we have received from our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we live a life like this, then we will be well-founded. and We will find that Jesus Christ and Him alone will be our anchor, our firm foundation in the storm of life and in the coming judgment. Build your life upon Him and Him alone and teach others to do likewise. That is what it means to be a disciple. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that the call to be a disciple is a weighty call. And the call to make disciples is weightier still. And we, not one of us, is up to the task in our own strength and in our own wisdom. But you, O oh God, are a gracious God who gives your people wisdom and gives your people grace. So we pray that you would give us grace and wisdom now and in the days ahead that we might be disciple makers serving you for your kingdom in obedience to our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.